You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to the show today. Unfortunately, we have to skip talking to Alex. He's kind of running all over the place right now, so no pleasant dulcet tones from him, but uh, I'm sure he'll be back next week. He's just right in the thick of a few things here in the studio. But today's show is live. You are welcome to call in at 416-245-1534. Also check out uh, our social media sites. At, uh, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And our handle on all three sites is at the Health Hub RMC. And you are pleased welcome. Or we're very much welcome to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. And we do have all of our live shows and tape shows flipped over to a podcast. Alex cleans everything up, any tiny mistakes I have made, and polishes them up nicely for our podcast. And you can find them on all the, the podcast sites, iTunes and SoundCloud. So lots of great guests we've had and lots of uh, wonderful, wonderful information. So do check out our podcasts. You can subscribe and then you don't have to really think too much about it. They're delivered directly to you as they come up. So we have a very packed show today, so maybe it's a good thing we don't have Alex on board chatting with us. Um, we have lots to talk about before our introduction of our guest, and then our topic today is is very poignant, and it's, it's something that uh, may not touch us directly, it may touch us directly, and it may be... Um, a topic or something that we may not even be quite aware of, and that's the topic of loneliness, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But I wanted to touch upon the topic of sugar with you. In clinic, this is something that I talk about all the time and trying to bring awareness to the vast amount of sugar that we do consume in our diet and how devastating it can be on on our health. And bringing this to the forefront of of your mind I feel is very important because there's so many places where sugar is hidden and the the health effects that it may be causing you un, unawares perhaps is something that I uh, you know I beat I beat in a lot when I'm talking to people the World Health Organization urges us to limit our sugar intake to to six teaspoons a day of added sugar and one teaspoon of sugar just to give you a visual is about four grams so. To put this into perspective and to hit home, you know, how far astray we can go. Um, one can of pop, soda pop, contains about 10 teaspoons of sugar or 40 grams, which in one fell swoop blows through the amount of sugar that we should be eating in a day. Sugar is full of empty calories. Our body just doesn't know what to do with it. It can cause us weight gain. 
in in the realm of uh, the cancer field, it can spike uh, your insulin. And this IGF pathway is one of the pathways that we must consider when we're talking about cancer. So that's something that we want to keep on a very even keel. Excess sugar can cause inflammation. It really does a number on your immune system, suppressing your immune system. As I mentioned, it can cause some insulin resistance or a great deal of insulin resistance. It can raise your cholesterol levels and so many other things. And so many, you know, this can be, you know, excess sugar can be the tipping point of so many different health issues. Sugar goes by, uh, I don't know how many names now that sugar is disguised by, but some of the more common ones are the high fructose corn syrup, barley malt. Cane sugar is another one of the, the sugars that if you're going to use is maybe one of the better ones. But also dextrose, maltose, rice syrup. There is a list full of names that sugar goes by. And make yourself well aware of that. And when you're reading labels, you know, you want you want to know the sugar content. But I wanted to highlight some of, you know, what most people would have as regular food in their day, condiments that are extremely high in sugar, and just point these out to you. So ketchup, it's a condiment that is very much used uh, in our homes. One tablespoon contain up to one teaspoon or four grams of sugar. So when you're considering you don't want more than 26 grams of sugar or so, one teaspoon on your hamburger really takes a bite out of the rest of your day as far as sugar is concerned. A glass of orange juice, one of the more popular brands of orange juice, is packed with about 23 grams of sugar. Keep bearing in mind the World Health Organization wants us to tap out at 26 grams. A single serving of a very common Greek yogurt with fruit on the bottom is 10 grams of sugar. Yogurt can be a very healthy food, but you really have to read your labels. Add your own fruit to it. Add honey to it. Try and read your labels. Protein bar is a very common protein bar that's sold in many, many grocery stores. is loaded with 22 grams of sugar. And a serving of tomato soup, so that's a half a can of condensed with a half a can of water, is approximately 12 grams of sugar. It's hidden everywhere, people. So I really want you to step back, read your labels, understand where all these hidden sugars are coming from. I didn't mention salad dressings. I didn't mention so many other things like cereals, but I just wanted to give you an idea. So that's my my food aspect of the show today. And now on to our topic. I read an article a while ago about um, the Britain appointing a minister for loneliness, and it sort of piqued my interest. And within this article, um, someone was saying that it was loneliness can be as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A uh, former United States Surgeon General wrote that um, loneliness needs to be addressed in the workplace and can be a, an issue for, for work productivity. So with this in mind, uh, we got a hold of Dr. Christopher Fagundes, who is an assistant professor at the Rice University. Working in the area of psychoneuroimmunology, Dr. Fagundes uses theories and methods from social, developmental, and clinical psychology to understand how stress gets under our skin to impact disease of older adulthood, such as cardiovascular disease, cancer, fatigue, and cognitive decline. He's particularly interested in how those experience early life stress or low socioeconomic status are disproportionately burdened by the negative psychological and physiological consequences of stress. He has authored more than 70 articles and chapters in journals such as JAMA Psychiatry, Health Psychology, Personality and Social Psychology, Bulletin, Developmental Psychology, Brain Behavior and Immunity, and Psychoneuroimmunology. 
Currently, Dr. Fagundes has a National Institute of Health funded grant examining how relationship insecurity in the context of losing a spouse impacts inflammation, which is prognostic for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, arthritis, osteoporosis, and Alzheimer's disease. He is also adopting theoretically based interventions to improve negative physical health consequences of bereavement. When we get back, we will talk to Dr. Christopher Fagundes. Last night put the heavy on me Woke up and I'm feeling lonely This world got a way of showing me Some days it'll lift you up Some days it'll call you bluff Man, most of my days I ain't got enough
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our number is 416-245-1534. If you'd like to call in and speak to me or Dr. Christopher Fagundes, who we'll meet in one second, please feel free to do so. Good morning, doctor. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. How's the sound on your end? Uh, it's still rough, but I'll try to make the best of it. Okay. It's not coming through on our end. Alex is working behind the scenes trying to figure this out. But let's get to topic. It's such an important thing to bring to the forefront, I think, and such great work that you're doing. Um, to, to frame things, we often associate loneliness with loss, but this is often not the case, and it's what you're doing a lot of research in. There's a growing wave of loneliness in society today, despite our connections with Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, and all the other things. What has, what has drawn you into this topic and caused you to, to really delve into the subject of loneliness? Well, when you look at the epidemiological literature, which it, what that means is these big, big national studies, um, the data has been pretty convincing over the past 10, 15, 20 years that loneliness is a huge risk factor for physical health outcomes. Um, now, to sort of a nice comparison that I like to make here is the effect size or how big the effect is for loneliness predicting something like cardiovascular disease or all-cause mortality is the same as cigarette smoking. And we all know how dangerous cigarette smoking is, but we don't think of these psychological things in the same way. So that made me delve into trying to understand why is that the case, um, which has you know moved me into looking at the underlying biology of what happens to people when they're lonely. It's this growing trend of really starting to connect our mind to our physical being, isn't it? It's really becoming apparent that everything is connected in this light. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been talked about a long time in sort of literature, history. You hear this idea that, you know, Something happens to somebody that's maybe they experience a loss, maybe they're um, depressed, whatever it might be. We, we, we've kind of had this feeling there are at risk factors for physical illness, but no data until recently. And now that we're able to actually understand the mechanisms behind it, um, we're, ever, we're able to get closer to better treating it. And it also um, gives pause to the notion that these effects are real and it's not just sort of our imagination. Mm -hmm. Now, for the purposes of your study and our conversation today, how do you define loneliness? Sure. So loneliness, the best predictor of loneliness in the definitional range is people's perceptions of being lonely, not how many friends they have on Facebook, not you know, if they drew some kind of um, chart of how big or small their social circle is, that doesn't seem to be as prognostic as if you literally ask someone, are you lonely and how much on a gradient scale? People's perceptions are what drives everything. So when you're interviewing people for your studies, I'm assuming you have a questionnaire, you're going to different, are you calling people into these studies or are you seeking them out? 
So um, in a lot of the work we do, we contact people and bring them in the lab, and we pay them for their time. Um, and we do self-report questionnaires, and we also do a lot of, we take blood and look at the underlying biology. But how we assess loneliness primarily is a self-report questionnaire that really just assesses people's perception. We also always get um, other measures like depression and also, like I said, people's social context, how many friends they have. But the best predictor, no matter what we seem to put in our models, is people's perceptions of loneliness. Interesting. So when you're dealing with the perception of loneliness, the psychology, the psychology of loneliness, are you also doing physiological markers on the other side? Yes. So we always take, um, take blood to look at um, mostly um, immune cells. We were really interested in how loneliness affects immunity. Um, lately, we've been very interested in this thing called pro-inflammatory cytokines. Mm -hmm. um, or inflammation, because we know that if we have a cut or something like that, inflammation is a very good thing. But when people have chronic low-grade inflammation, for example, when they're stressed or when they're um, overweight, that can really contribute to just about all diseases of older adulthood. Are you able to make the psychological connection and the physiological connection, are you able to at this point, explain what, why these physiological processes are being impacted by the psychology. What's that mechanism? What's that interchange? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's biological pathways that underlie it. Um, the, the primary pathway that underlies a lot of this is we secrete cortisol when we are stressed, and people, people that's almost common knowledge. And cortisol actually is very anti-inflammatory. You might think of a cortisone shot or something like that. But when you're chronically secreting cortisol, the immune cells become insensitive to it, um, and then you have sort of elevated inflammation throughout the body. That's the primary mechanism. So you can imagine a scenario where you're chronically in this loneliness state that it's over time making you more inflamed. So the immune system is tipping and spilling over to all these other diseases that you're currently linking or trying to link loneliness to. Correct. Now, we also look at other things, for example, like blood pressure. And sure enough, loneliness contributes to blood pressure um, and sort of other markers as well, but um, triglycerides and such. But honestly, the inflammatory mechanism um, is the strongest, and we just know from the health literature how important it is. You did an extremely interesting study. Um, it was led by you and a graduate student, Angie Leroy. Am I correct about that? Yes. yes. Could, you, could you tell everyone about it? I found it fascinating. Yeah, so we looked at, um, so we, we looked at data on people when they actually, they participated in this study, where they agreed to be quarantined. And when they were quarantined, they um, were given the, um, the flu virus. Um, and they were paid very well to do this and, you know, monitored very, very closely. And people that, of the people that actually got the flu virus compared to those that didn't, 
people that reported they were lone, more lonely before they came in for the study at all had symptoms that were much stronger and lasted much longer than others. Um, they reported being feeling more ill and more sick. And this was sort of independent of many, many other factors showing the sort of the strength of loneliness. Um, there's been other work to say, show also that people are more susceptible to colds in the first place. Because you can expose someone to a cold and not everyone's going to get it. And sure enough, loneliness matters quite a bit. For our study, the interesting part is we put in, you know, people's social networks and how many friends they had and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that wasn't predictive. What was predictive was the perceptions of loneliness. So the symptoms that came out of people who got the flu, uh, the symptoms that were stronger than, than the others, the, the lonelier people, were they physiological symptoms or were they um, subjective symptoms? Was it fever? So, um, in, yes. In this particular study, what we were interested in actually wasn't their physiological symptoms. We were, we were interested in how they feel. Um, and the reason why is because we all know those folks that if they're hit with the flu or hit with the cold, they just feel horrible. And we also know people that somehow kind of can manage it very differently, right? You hear about these athletes that will go and um, play in um, a huge basketball game that they were um, supposed to play in, even though they had a 101 fever. So what separates those people is they have the same thing, and people's perceptions matter. Mm -hmm. um, and the loneliness, this chronic stress, makes people more susceptible to bad things that happen to you. So resiliency is definitely downgraded in people that are lonely. That's a good way to think about it, yes. They're much more um, resilient, little stressors um, mean more. They're more physiological reactive to um, to little stressors. We brought people in the lab before and put a catheter in their arm and done a, just an experimental stress test to look at um, acute rises in inflammation. Sure enough, the people that report that they're lonely, they have bigger spikes. So um, we've seen this sort of mechanistically, but also in sort of um, the sort of longitudinal and observationally. How did we get to this point? You know, we are social animals. It's almost in our genetic code. And, it, it, you know, and it, it, it seems that, you know, if, if we can get to a state of loneliness, that the flip side of it that is that interaction is a necessary part of the human venture. So how come now we're having this wave, this, this health issue of loneliness, in your opinion? Well, I think it's a lot of different things. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're separated more now than we ever were before. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that if you just think about a couple hundred years ago, people didn't separate from their families like they do now to get that great job or um, sort of to live somewhere where cost of living is lower or whatever it might be. I think that's really changed the dynamic a lot. Um, I think there's other uh, things involved as well. Um, work in a lot of ways has changed where people, and this has been reported a lot, there used to be a lot more company picnics that people would stay in a job for 20, 30 years and be friends with um, 
you know, people they work with. And we don't see that anymore. The average person seems to stay in a job for two or three years. I think the data demonstrates. And companies around the world are very afraid of friendships in the workplace um, for, you know, lawsuit reasons and also because they worry it's going to create problems. Now, I want to get into aging and loneliness and um, if loneliness affects younger people. But do you think, in your opinion, with the way society seems to be going after what you've just explained to us, is our need for people, do you feel that that's going to change? Do Will the younger generation with their their separation with their social media. Do you think that, you know, we as, as the, the generation, the older generation compared to our children, we need that interaction and we're, this is the age of loneliness. But do you think our children will need the interaction that, that we seem to need so desperately? Oh, yeah. I think, they, I, I think that is, like you said before, in our DNA. You know, the need to belong is a fundamental human need. Um, and that's not going away. Um, that's not that that's occurred through, um, you know, eons of evolution. Now, how younger folks manage it uh, will be different. Face to face connection we know is different than, for example, online connection. Um, and with online connection, you get a lot more social comparisons, which can be damaging, but at the same time, it is a mode of connection, um, which um, may have some benefits. Um, but I also think it's sort of something that um, society is going to have to work out um, if we're going to sort of stay mentally healthy. Well, do you think that children that are growing up with this age of social media, are they developing social skills that are going to carry them through this loneliness, um, the chance of being lonely? Like, as you're saying, you know, we're, we're talking back and forth on text as my phone's going off here, and, and, and it's, it's easy to type something in a quick response. But with this happening and with, with people, dive, you know, not wanting to be on the phone and rather texting, are we doing our kids a disservice and not developing their needed social skills to avoid the possibility of becoming lonely? You know, it's a difficult question. If, if all of the other contexts like texting or Instagram or whatnot are replacing social interactions, then I think that's going to be a negative thing that's going to be a problem. I don't think it is inherently an issue if social interactions are also a big part of our lives. Um, the thing I worry about, to be honest, the most about um, sort of a, the Facebook and different ways to connect is that people report after they go on that they they feel worse. And the mechanism of why that's the case is they're always comparing themselves to others on there. Um, and social comparison is really what they're doing more than connecting with other people um, one-on-one. Okay, so I guess that begs the next question I want to ask you. Are you seeing a lot of loneliness in in younger people? Or is it is that is the, the, the amount of loneliness, the percentage going up in the younger group, or is it still mainly um, an older person phenomenon? 
so that's a really good question. So what we see among um, younger people is when they're in college, they generally, not always, but generally don't report higher levels of loneliness. And when they're in school, they don't. The first job that they get afterward, that's when you see a skyrocket in loneliness um, because it's sort of a shock to the system that you have these built-in people that are your age, and then you move somewhere else, have a job. You might not have anyone you know, even in your age demographic, depending on where you're working at. And there's just this huge abrupt change. And when people join the workforce after school, that's when you see it skyrocket. Interesting. Um, Dr. Fagundes, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue right along this, uh, this exact line of topic here. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Okay, perfect.
peace. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Fagundes about the topic of loneliness. Um, Dr. Fagundes, I just want to continue and end off um, the topic of age as far as loneliness is concerned. I recently had a conversation with uh, a young woman, probably about the age of 30, and we started talking about, we we're actually talking about the, the show coming up, and uh, she was talking about how nowadays people her age have to seek out groups, and they do this um, especially when they're trying to meet someone on all these social apps, the dating apps, the, the bumbles, I don't know what they all are, the Tinder. Um, is that is that young people's way now of reaching out, do you think? Is that one of the byproducts of how society is going? Yeah, well, some of those apps, um, being married for a long time, I have never actually used them. Me either. <laughs> but some of those apps are more, from my understanding, um, dating apps than friend apps. And the people I've known that use them, it's most of the time to get a first date much more than um, than sort of, um, you know, making new friends. Now, there might be some, I'm sure there is apps up there that are more pushing a friendship network. And I actually think that would be very valuable as a first step, especially if people move to a new city or something like that. Um but I'm not sure what the dating apps would actually do for loneliness unless it sort of turned into a long-term relationship. And I guess, you know, I, I think a lot on the spot when we, we talk about situations and topics like this, and maybe that is the way, you know, we talk about are, the, are our children as much in need of friendship as we are, and you said definitely it's in our DNA, and maybe maybe this is the, the current way that, that people are reaching out. Um, this girl was talking about pretty much what you were saying, you know, in school, she never really had an issue. But when she went to work, she works long hours and she yeah. just comes home at night. But why is that any different from what we did? I mean, we did the same thing. Well, I think one difference, and I'm I'm not encouraging people to get married super young, but I think one difference is a lot of times when people joined the workforce around the same time, they were in a uh, a coupled relationship. And uh, remember, it's perceptions of loneliness. So just having one person you can count on for support and security, um, that can help dramatically. Um, but because we joined the workforce, and then, you know, I think the average now is you, you almost 10 years before you're um, in sort of a committed kind of married type of relationship, that's a long gap of time. Um, where you're sort of in limbo from school to that setting. And as more of your friends sort of get married and you don't, I think that even causes more strain. I've certainly seen it among the friends I've known that have stayed single longer. Um, they almost want to be, quote unquote, adopted by their married friends to have some kind of social connection like that. Mm-hmm. Now, because loneliness, as you have stated, is a perception that we have. You know, I could look at somebody and they seem to be on the social scene a lot, and yet they could be lonely. 
are there risk signs that we can sort of cue into or is it just such a personal thing like can we can we look into you know to family members friends and is there something that would stick out that would maybe cue us into the fact that they're lonely yeah that's a really good question um and first i would say we can make assumptions that are wrong and you might have someone that's introverted has a couple social connections doesn't like to go out of time, out a lot and enjoys their life thoroughly and i think sometimes we make the mistake of um actually pushing those people in the other direction but signs of loneliness will generally look somewhat similar to signs of depression um and we know that loneliness can be a precursor to depression so if people are for example aren't experiencing a lot of sort of positive affect and joy not just that they're not sort of super on the negative end but aren't experiencing sort of that positive and joy that can be a warning sign people gain weight or lose weight it doesn't have to be by any means but it can be a warning sign any kind of dysregulation like that people that report a lot of sleep problems lonely or people report a lot of sleep problems so those are the things that can be an indicator it, but they're only just indicators can we self-correct if someone's listening to the show and hasn't realized you know that they may be going um on onto this path can we self-correct i think it depends on the question of what got you there right mm-hmm. so for some people um they have a really hard time um making new social connections um for a variety of reasons um it could be shyness it could be to just have a lot of social anxiety it could be that they don't feel like they fit in um but there's trainings that people can do and there's well empirically validated um psychological interventions that can be done to teach people so- those skills so that could be one thing um if people don't have a problem with that um i think that one of the best things people can do is join some kind of social or some type of group that matches their interest and it's a nice way to build social connections so whether you're into biking or swimming or bowling or it does it it just has to match your interest it's much easier to find people like you because people like you likely like to do the same things as you and it's much easier to find those people doing that than sort of going to a bar and hoping you can meet someone with commonalities okay now uh, just a quick question because i've got two that i really want to get to and i don't want to take a lot of time on this one but we've talked about loneliness causing physical uh issues have you seen where physical issues may cause loneliness and and the one that pops into my head is is a hearing loss or um a disease and 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 not not to the effect that if you're sick you can't get out of the house but i'm thinking more like um like a hearing disease where if someone's losing their hearing you see a withdraw and then loneliness can come in that vacuum yeah that's a good question i haven't seen any data personally on the notion of hearing loss being a sort of precursor but it makes a lot of sense there's very good data to show um if you're a caretaker so if your spouse actually um needs care around the clock especially if they're 
um, getting older and they might be having symptoms that are um, AED Alzheimer's related. There's a lot of data on that showing that people become very isolated and very lonely. Um, there are, um, when people are, this isn't a physical disease, well, that's complicated, but depression, when people are depressed, um, they withdraw themselves a lot. And um, that can be, you know, really difficult for people. But the, the literature actually is the strongest to say when you're a caretaker, that can really drive um, symptoms of loneliness. Okay. Now, I want to get into your current work, which is very interesting, and it kind of ties in with a question that I have. Your current work is examining how relationship insecurities in the context of, um, you know, a spouse or losing a spouse can impact inflammation. And, of course, we talked about inflammation can lead to all sorts of other diseases. Is loneliness from what you've been researching and studying, do, pe- do people really grow up lonely or is loneliness the result in most cases of loss? Um, they're different constructs. They, there's some overlap, but they're definitely different constructs. People that grow up, so when you think developmentally, people that grow up in um, environments that, are, that make them insecure, we talk a lot about sort of attachment security, um, from very early on in life, they either learn to be really anxious around um, other people because they're <clears throat> anxious with their attachment relationships or they become avoidant. So when they're anxious a lot of times, they're always worried about being abandoned because they were worried about being abandoned from very early in life. And when they're worried about that abandonment, um, it can actually drive people away in adulthood um, because no one likes to be around a person that is constantly saying, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? At the same time, another form of insecurity, the avoidant form um, that people can develop with a sort of a cold caregiver early in life is they learn just not to count on other people. They learn, they, they mistrust other people. They don't think, uh, they think people are out to get them. And both forms of insecurity um, lead you to sort of have a perception of the world that people are not reliable, you can't count on them, no one sort of really loves me. And that can that last throughout the lifespan, that perception. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Now, when it comes to the loss of a loved one, a partner, a child even, um, I, I mean, I don't know if... If you lose a child, that emotion is, I imagine, if you have a partner and you've lost a child, that might not kick you into what we might clinically call loneliness. But when you've lost a partner, do you find that if you lose a partner in a very good relationship as a younger person versus an older person, is there a skewed difference in the the profoundness of the loneliness? Oh, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, and the answer is actually that younger people, um, have a, have a harder time when they lose a spouse. Um, a lot because it's not normative, um, in the same way. It's abrupt, most of the time a shock, but also their social network hasn't lost spouses. So when people are older, um, you know, unfortunately it happens quite frequently and the social network can be 
sort of built around that in some ways. So the data shows that typically it's actually the the younger people that suffer more from grief and loneliness after a loss. That being said, the physical health toll is much more dramatically older. I guess that makes more sense. Now, when when you've lost somebody, do you need that same, and, and, and you are lonely, do you need that same type of relationship back in your life? Or can loneliness be um, driven down with any close relationship? That's a great question. So there's been a lot of theoretical work on this, and it's been tested quite a bit, that we typically need what we call a primary attachment figure. And our primary attachment figure is who we go to for support, we go to for security, we trust. In adulthood, that's often a spouse. In childhood, that's often a parent. And then we get that in-between part. When people don't have someone at the tap, at the sort of top of their attachment hierarchy, that they can say, this is the person I can count on, that's when life gets unbelievably rough. Um, that's sort of this unnatural state. So if people get another attachment figure, maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's another significant other, they heal a lot quicker. Okay, so... Um having a good circle of friends. I mean, you'll never replace a having relationship. A of, having a good circle of friends helps. There's no doubt about it. But within that circle of friends, if there's one, and this is, the, this is an important um, construct that's been studied a lot in psychology, there needs to be one at the top that is the person you go to to get in a car wreck, is the person you call when something great happens to you. When you know that one person and you can – the way you can think about it is you can name them immediately. Then you have a primary. If not, but you just have a sort of a group of friends, um, that can be really dysregulating still because you don't have that one person. But you can bounce back, correct? You can bounce back, absolutely. And people go through this at other times of life. You, you, you see this when people go through a difficult breakup or a divorce. There's a time period when they're very dysregulated, right? And then they, they find someone else, whether they revert back to a parent early sort of in their 20s or they find another partner, they find another close friend. It's just having that one person. And when we don't have that one person, it's a difficult thing. We talk about this actually in the breakup literature, which can um, be very much of a facilitator to loneliness. The notion that we have where we tell people after a breakup you need to get have time sort of to find yourself and um, sort of learn about yourself. That's almost like asking someone that is, let's say, super hungry that they need to get comfortable with their hungriness before they have food. We have such a need to belong that when we don't have that one person, we really struggle. But I imagine with, you know, and this is in your research, uh, I, I haven't seen your research on, on this aspect that you're studying now. Uh, do you have published research right now on this part of your, of your loneliness topic? On breakups? Yes, on what you've been for, given the grant for. You, so, oh, for the, so for the grant now, um, I did breakup work quite a long time ago. Okay. For the grant now on grief. 
Um, yes, we have published data that's coming out to show that grieving people have higher levels of inflammation, um, which is a really important mechanism. They're more depressed. They're more lonely than age-matched controls. We see that they also have poor sort of autonomic regulation without going into the details of it, of their autonomic nervous system. We see they report more um, symptoms of sort of poor health. If you take the group that is bereaved um, and you compare the people that are doing the worst versus the ones that aren't, the people that are reporting sort of loneliness are the ones that are doing worse on depression and other sort of clinical scales. Can you address the health issues of these people successfully? Uh, you know, with, with you know, you've, you've well laid out, as others have, that there are physiological issues to loneliness. Can you address mm-hmm. these health issues, the inflammation, the immunity, without at, the, at least the same time addressing this topic of loneliness? Gotcha. So you mean, can we intervene some way? Is that on the, the on the health aspect? Is there is there, you know, will exercise help you if you or gotcha. is, do you have to yeah. deal with the loneliness at the very top of your of your list? Well, there are things. I mean, no one wants to be in a chronically lonely state, and dealing with that through um, psychotherapy or other things that we've laid out already is important. But if you wanted to target the physiological impact directly, um, they're, they're working on this now. They're working on the idea of people taking um, insects for grief, which lower inflammation. There's data to show that that actually helps both their psychological health and physical health um, in times of high stress. There is, there's work going on right now to look at how meditation might help. Um, this, this thing called mindfulness, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of when you're in this present moment state, um, there is, there's some work on exercise. The tricky thing about grief and exercise is as you become older, you can become more limited. Um, what we're trying to do in the lab is having sort of yoga type of interventions that people that are, um, older adults can do. I think that your work is so important and so relevant because as with, you know, all things integrative, which is, you know, definitely what my passion is, we have to look at the person as a whole being and that it's not, you can't separate the mind from the body and we have to tackle everybody on a systemic level. And I think the work that you're doing, you know, for people who are listening today, for people who may be lonely, I think knowing and understanding maybe what needs to be done next and understanding that taking care of your health means taking care of your psychological health. This is very important work that you're doing because there are many people that may not even know the connection between the two. And and unfortunately we're running out of time on this great topic, but if you could, you know, if you could give us one pearl of wisdom that you've taken away from all of your studies that may really help our listeners it would, be, it would be really great, a great way to end off the show for us. Sure. So the, the biggest pearl of wisdom that I'll sum up that I've learned over these past um, 10 or 15 years of doing this kind of work now is that close relationships matter. 
not only do they affect our mental health, but they they get under the skin in ways that predict our physical health, that predict disease, and they matter just as much, if not more, than every other health behavior that you read about that your doctor tells you to do. And we need to find a way to foster good, close social relationships. Thank you very much for that. Now, where can people go to look at some of your studies? Yeah, so um, my lab has a website. Um, It's uh, um, BMED, which is B-M-E-D dot rice dot E-D-U. Or if you just Google my name, it'll you could it'll be the first hit on there where you can um, go to that link. So my lab website's the best. Okay. Um, and just typing in my name or that address will get you there. Okay, and I will put that up on our Facebook website. Thank you so much for such an engaging conversation, a great topic. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Well, thank you. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.